0: Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you.
1: Although I have completely blocked that memory out because this play is not great. Um, them's fighting words. Uh, I still love you. It's fine. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You gotta love me foibles and all. That's
0: I do. That's the, the yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point of this play. That's the whole point of this play. Okay, it? it is. Yeah. Whatever.
1: To the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet
0: and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hwemlet. And this week it's All's Well That Ends Well 201. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Sorry, I'm really excited. I'm just really excited to come back to my favorite play. Uh, okay. So things are a little different for 201-level episodes.
1: Yeah, we operate on the assumption that you already kind of know the play, so we don't do a synopsis or anything. If you are a newbie to Allswell and you ended up here weirdly, um, go listen to episode 23 in season one, which is Well 101.
0: Yeah. For the 201-level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on just a couple of topics relating to the play. So today, we're going to talk about bed tricks and Bertram OMG Bertram. I've been sitting on this topic since we did the 101. I can't wait. Cannot wait. Um, but first, we need to revisit a rhetorical device of the week. Mm-hmm.
1: So in our our 101 episodes, uh, usually, often, always, uh, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and give examples. But at the 201 level, we revisit a device that we've already done and we discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance.
0: Yeah. In the 101 episodes, we say over and over again that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character or give us a possible line reading. But what does that mean? So to understand that, we need to look at the specific context in which a device is used and think about the kind of device it is. And this week, um, I because I wanna talk about Bertram, I went back to the text and I looked at like what his dominant one of his dominant devices is throughout the play like his journey and guess what it's hyperbaton you know hyperbaton it's yoda speak it is basically the it's the rearrangement or disorder of usual sentence structure it is the reason Most of the time when people say, I hate Shakespeare, that's why, it's because they're complaining about hyperbaton and flipping word order around. Uh, If you're not sure if a character is using it, ask yourself if they sound like Yoda from Star Wars, or ask yourself if their sentences could be phrased more directly by just switching a couple words around. If yes, then that's hyperbaton. Um, Also, it's pretty noticeable because it's always the lines that make people go, huh, what? Um, and might even make you say that, because it's a little confusing, um, because that's the point of this rhetorical device. So I mean, was there ever a more hyperbatonic boy than Bertram? I think not. Um, whether it's in prose or in verse or when he's lying or when he's telling the truth, that boy is mixed up and off kilter. Okay. So just I'm picking, I'm cherry picking a few strong uh, examples, but you will find these all throughout his speech, even in very, very short lines, responses to questions, things like that. He uses hyperbaton all over the goddamn place. Um, so the first thing he says in act one, scene one is, and I am going, madam, weep or my father's death anew. Instead of weep anew or my father's death, right? He's a classic inversion. In one two when he's with the king, he says, so in a proof lives not his epitaph. When dissing and dismissing Helen in act two, scene five, which we will come back to. To refresh your memory, this is the point in the play where he and Helen, this is the only time he and Helen have had a conversation between one another uh, and when he's not talking about her while she's in the room to someone else. Um, He says to her, uh, it's about line 57 or so in act two, scene five. Uh, He says, you must not marvel Helen at my course, which holds not color with the time, nor does the ministration and required office on my particular prepared. I was not for such a business. Therefore, I am found so much unsettled. This drives me to entreat you that presently you take your way for home and rather muse than ask why I entreat you for my respects are better than they seem and my appointments have in them a need greater than shows itself at the first view to you that know them not. Yikes. Exactly, right? Like, he he's flipping shit all over the place in that speech. um, And, and you know, that's, uh, I guess, an acting choice that would then be the responsibility of the person playing Bertram to decide why he's doing that, but he is doing it a lot and and to this woman around whom he clearly feels uncomfortable for whatever reason. Uh might be because he was just forced to marry her. I don't know. Um and then when the brothers domain try to convince uh, him of Paroli's villainy somewhere in act 3 or 4, act 3, um he says <laughs> and I'm going to try to say this right. Okay. Why? Do you think he will make no deed at all of this that so seriously he does address himself unto? Woof. What the fuck are you saying, bro? Like, what are you saying? Okay. Then when trying to woo Diana in Act 4, Scene 2, the the cute Italian girl that he's trying to get with. Be not so wholly cruel. Love is holy, and my integrity ne'er knew the crafts that you do charge men with. Stand no more off. Ugh. Okay. And then when he's lying his little butt off to everybody in Act 5, Scene 3... My high repented blames, dear sovereign, pardon to me. And were the impression of mine eye in fixing, la-di-da, since I have lost, have loved, was in mine eye the dust that did offend it. And certain it is I liked her and boarded her in the wanton way of youth, and so on and so forth. And like I said, you're going to find these everywhere. He's mixed the fuck up. You will find that a character uses hyperbaton most often when they are hiding something like Claudius in Hamlet, Claudius's very first speech is similar in structure in a lot of ways to the one that I just read of, of Bertram's um, because, Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because Claudius murdered his brother so that he could marry his wife, whatever. And he wants to keep it covered up or that character might be confused or uncomfortable, generally dodgy, uh, emotionally like, uh, agitated, you know? So, Actors make what you will of that information, but it is there for you, all over the place, regardless. So that is our deep dive into Hyperbaton. It was so deep. I know it was a really deep dive. I didn't see it coming either. I was just like, I'm gonna look at the way Bertram talks, and then I was like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that that was my journey today. Uh, so Jess, what's in your bag? Uh, bed tricks awesome let's talk about it yeah so
1: we've talked about bed tricks before we have uh i'm sure in the measure episode and probably also in the Oswell 101 yes all right um so bed tricks are a trope in early modern drama um in which one character is substituted for another character in the bed of a third character yes Uh, the person being substituted is almost always a woman and the person being tricked is almost always a man. So just for funsies for the last, um, time of my life, amount of time, some amount of time, I've been sort of collecting plays with bed tricks just to like, know how, many bed tricks are out there in the world uh-huh. um my list is not long it is uh seven plays oh it's not by any means exhaustive it's just like every time i come across a bed trick i'm like oh let sure. me put that on the list so yeah,
0: you're keeping a tally yeah. as you go
1: yeah yeah um if you are interested the plays with bed tricks on my list are Allswell, well uh the changeling which mm-hmm. is middleton and rowley Measure for Measure, which is yes. Shakespeare, and maybe Middleton if you are into that. Um, Sophonisba, or maybe Sophonisba. I don't
0: Sofanesba. know. Sophonisba. Yeah, I'm not I sure know. how to say that. Uh, Sophonisba. I,
1: I think know. it's Soph Sophonisba or
0: Sophonisba. I'm, I'm just fucking around. Those are I've the only two syllables it... you hadn't touched yet. Yeah, so I, I just... I've
1: never heard anyone say it out loud. Although I've encountered okay. it in print a lot. So anyway, it's a Marston play uh, that I've never read. Y'all. Uh, then we have the Insatiate Countess, which mm, yes. w- w- is by someone—Rowley, Decker,
0: um, Irma Gerd. Uh, it's the the one guy. It's yeah, on the poster that guy. In, hang on, I know the. I, I mean, it's h- h-
1: hanging on your wall. I, it, it is
0: hanging on my wall. Hold yeah. on.
1: Yeah, turn around and look for me. By John Marston et al. Marston. Oh yes, one of them. Marston. Yeah.
0: Marshal, Marshal but it was like trick. a collabo,
1: but he was like the, right. I think, the
0: head honcho on that one.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's five. Uh, mm-hmm. Number six is The Witch by Middleton. Here's mm-hmm. another, another bro that loves a bed trick. And um, a weird one uh, that I had never heard of until today, uh, The Scornful Lady by Beaumont and Fletcher, Ooh. in which uh, a man bed tricks a woman. So uh, a dude gets into bed with a lady by pretending to be a lady.
0: Ooh. Yeah. Right. That's kind of nifty. So and then, that lady's a lesbian. I don't think or so. she thinks she's going d- to bed
1: with a lady. I, yeah. But I don't think that she thinks she's going to like sexy bed with a lady. I think oh. it's like a like a bedfellow situation. I don't oh, know. I've never read the play. Okay. But that wow. is I would I would be surprised if uh, Beau Fletch had written a sexy lesbian play don't know that I'd be that surprised
0: frankly (laughs) if anyone was gonna do it it would be Beaumont and Fletcher I
1: feel in my bones so um (laughs) so that's what a bed trick is that is some of the places that bed tricks show up uh what I am interested in re-bed tricks is what my students are always interested in every time I teach measure which is the issue of consent sure And whether or not, because in in both All's Well and Measure, which are the two plays that I believe our listeners will be the most familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, the bed trick is a plot device that gets used to right some wrongs, right? And it's for like a noble cause and it's going to clear the name of an innocent
0: woman or whatever. And And also it's lawful because the two people that uh actually get into bed together are already married.
1: Yeah. Like, it's a convenient thing that is duplicitous but in the best possible way and yet Mm -hmm. right i i do believe that some states in the united states in 2019 have laws on the books that call this kind of thing rape sure that that is a, a
0: a legal definition and a yep. fact that I know to be true: being tricked um, into sleeping with a person you didn't think you were going to end up in bed with, for yeah, sure, right?
1: You know, and it's didn't like didn't consent
0: to sleep with, yeah.
1: Uh huh. It's like, oh ha ha ha, we're identical twins. Let's swap partners, right? And see Women if they are notice. interchangeable,
0: right? right? Totally, we're or all dudes, the same, you
1: know, right? But like,
0: yeah. but it's mostly ladies in these situations. Yeah. So, yeah. But like,
1: it's it's not okay, right? This is right a thing in 2019 that we're gonna sit here and we're gonna say that's not okay right um and there's a whole section on this in the Arden that doesn't really talk about the not okayness of it all but sort of talks about Helena's sexuality and anyway I I don't like this play I think we all know that because perhaps of the issue of the bed trick like The whole play seems to be going out of its way to paint Helena as the chaste, virtuous, loving, scorned, wronged woman Mm -hmm. who is, uh, for whatever fucking reason, still in love with this guy who clearly wants nothing to do with her. And I'm just like, honey, love yourself. So she goes to France, and she goes to these lengths, and she bed tricks, and she gets pregnant by him, and that is how she gets him to finally come home to her in the end and, like, recognize their marriage and live together as husband and wife. And I think it's gross, and I think it's shitty, and I think... The play wants me to be like, yeah, Helena, get yours, girl, fucking do it. That guy was not so great to you, so you got to trick him. And I don't feel that way. I think that Helena is bad and wrong, and I think she needs to love herself. But also, I don't think a bad trick is okay. I think Mm -hmm. it's a bad move, and that's how I feel about that. So, like, bad tricks, am I right? <laughs> yeah yeah what do, you, no, what do you feel about that
0: uh, about the bed trick yeah same as you or like in I think, general yeah I mean I I think you know Helena as a as a heroine as she's definitely meant to be I think in in the play she's mm-hmm. positioned in that yeah, heroine she's the protagonist figure yeah she's the protagonist mm-hmm. I, I commits what to our sensibilities are grave misdeeds mm-hmm. <laughs> I was serious looking for the right word. Error in judgment yes 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 serious errors in judgment and I don't I'm not gonna try to sit here and justify them I'm not because she does some shitty stuff honestly the the person I'm more fascinated by at this point is Bertram you know <sighs> i guess that's why this is a problem play like mm. i i feel mm-hmm. like helen it, it, she's in the same boat as isabella in a lot of ways uh, isabella from measure in that she totally totally buys into the idea that because they're already married what they're doing is fine and and isabella and and helena both throughout their sort of journey through their plays are Um, Obsessed with their own Virginity There's like You know And for different reasons You know Isabella is Is very much uh, You know Concerned with Staying chaste Forever Because that's You know She wants to be a nun So Mm -hmm. Um, But like It it comes up Throughout her play Um, For Helen It's a totally Different track Like she's headed Toward losing Her virginity With whom she wants From jump Like act one scene one she has that conversation with parolees about losing her virginity to someone of her liking and and all through like there's you know it's consummation is is constantly brought up and then avoided you know Bertram avoids consummating the marriage and um, so I I don't really have like fully formed opinions about that I'm sure. not going to tell you you're wrong because you're not <laughs> great thanks <laughs> you're not wrong um, to to sort of despise her. uh, I get frustrated with her, too.
1: You know what's weird, sidebar? Hmm. Yeah. Is that Shakespeare never once uses the word problem in his canon at all, ever. The word "pro"? Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That is kind of interesting. problem never shows up. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking at it in the OED because I'm like, well, did the word exist? And it absolutely did. Um, It seemed like... It was maybe, perhaps, a little
0: bit of a new word, hmm.
1: um, but it, it for sure is there.
0: Uh, huh. He just doesn't use it. Yeah. Of just... like the 30,000 words in his vocabulary or yeah. whatever, however big his vocabulary was, he just didn't use it yeah, in his Bravong place. does not show up. Weird. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that, that is really
1: fucking interesting? Really
0: weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a weird bit of trivia.
1: Hmm. Yes. All
0: right. I mean that is that is fascinating.
1: Yeah, uh, um, we've bird walked, and that is we just have.
0: the way that
1: these things but go. So why yeah, don't you tell us about um, Bertram,
0: and I'll okay. just be over here like bed tricks. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me preface this by saying that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to make you like Bertram if you don't. Good. Great. I. I, myself, I struggle to like him, but I I struggle to like everybody in this play, frankly, except for LaVache, who's perfect, and maybe LaFue, who is also perfect, and the Countess, who is trebly perfect. They are perfect. Other than that, everyone else, though, uh, is, is a tough sell. The thing is, though, we need to talk about Bertram. Also, that scene in Act 2 between Bertram and Helen, but we'll get back to that. Okay. So... Jess, yet again, I will say thank you for my gift of the Arden Three. well that ends well for Christmas because you, girl. it is full of gems, like like an entire section about Bertram, which was so marvelously marvelously helpful today. Um, they say you know the hinge of both plots. Uh, which is the the gulling of Parole's and uh, and Helen's journey, both of those plot lines that run concurrently in this play. The hinge of both of them is Bertram, and in the largest sense, what it means to be a man. I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Um, Bertram, unlike Iago and Richard, or even Benedick uh, and some other you know unwilling lovers or conspiratorial sort of leading men. Bertram gets no soliloquy. There's no moment when he talks to the audience at length about his plans, about his inner workings, about anything. So we have to infer all of his motivations ourselves through maybe his hyperbatonic language or um, his actions in the play and how people describe his actions and his overall change in the play, which I think is nebulous and interesting particularly if you're trying to perform this part. So, folks out there, if you ever get cast as Bertram, don't be like, "Oh man, that guy's a dick." Um instead, listen, listen to your Auntie Aubrey for just a moment and I'm going to give you some stuff that's going to help you empathize with him a little better. I'm also going to preface this by saying that I've been watching a lot of Veronica Mars reruns lately and I think a lot of my Bertram theory is being informed by my love, hate, and affection for Logan Eccles. So just moving out from there. Okay, so he uh, is—he gets no soliloquy. He is torn between the pressures to be a courtier from his mom and the pressure to go to war and prove himself as a man from from parolees and the pressure all of a sudden out of nowhere to be a husband and whatever the fuck that means. Overall, he's a victim of the patriarchy as much as anyone else is, male or female, Uh, Male privilege, am I right? So many people cite Bertram as their main objection to the quote-unquote believability of the love story, quote-unquote, of All's Well. Feel my air quotes. Love story believability. I am personally not of the opinion that this is a love story. I really do feel like this play, in terms of the trajectory, especially of this character, is a coming-of-age play. Why would Helen want such a jerk, right? I I ask myself this all the time. Only the person playing Helen can answer that. It's worth considering some mitigating factors when it comes to Bertram, the object of her affection. Bertram is not necessarily the central character of the play. That is Helen. Um, He is peripheral to her, but he's the one whose arc and transformation is the most interesting to me. Um, And his story, like Prince Hal's, I think, I really do think is a coming of age story. Although he doesn't quite pull it off as gracefully as Hal, and he definitely doesn't become a king that everyone loves. (laughs) He rather just becomes a little better than he was before and isn't that life so <laughs> don't laugh you know it's true uh so you know whereas paroles reverts back to being simply the thing he is which is a coward bertram changes from a boy who runs away from responsibility to a man who eventually though begrudgingly owns up to it and helena doesn't change she just gets pregnant she is a like one track mind all the way through i don't think she grows a lot at all. I don't think she changes. So first of all, Bertram is young. He can't be more than 21. And the Arden backs me up on this, um, which is the age of majority. Otherwise he wouldn't still be a ward of the King of France, right? He still wouldn't be under the King's control if he had come into his full inheritance and majority. So he's young babies, he's real young. And I mean, think back to yourself when you're like 18, 19, 20, I was a damn fool like I don't know were you Jess at 18 19 20 making dumb decisions um, in your
1: youth this is gonna sound shitty but no oh my I God. mean I wasn't like super smart and rational all the time but I I didn't I didn't I didn't I made I I made a lot of dumb decisions
0: post-divorce <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like the general experience of being a teenager yeah it's not great you know I was not it, you know, I was not smart I was not no, confident I and was like, not well read <laughs> everything is extreme like you're still really self-centered I, I think about like ages 18 through 21 for me that's college for me and, I mean uh, I,
1: I, I I met my husband when I was 19 so hmm I didn't have a whole lot of time to like go out and be an idiot. Oh, sure. That's a different I was, trajectory. Yeah. I, and yeah. then I got divorced and then I was an idiot. Sure.
0: Okay. Okay. So it was a little delayed for you. For yes. me, it definitely yeah. was not. I was running around acting a fool from ages 18 to 21 all through college. Sure. Thank you, UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> I regret nothing. Yes. So, like, I regret go absolutely nothing. Slugs. But, like, right? Thank you. Um, But I do remember that age, and I encourage everyone to think back, like, when you were that age and the maturity level that you had. And if you think you were mature, you probably weren't, so shut up. Um, So through the first half of the play, though, like we know how young he is by how everyone refers to him. He is referred to as a boy, a rude boy, a proud, scornful boy, a rash and unbridled boy, an unbaked and doughy youth. My goodness. An unseasoned courtier, too young, young Bertram, young lord, and my favorite, sweetheart.
1: Sorry, an unbaked and doughy youth? Yeah. God, that sounds like directions for something you'd find in
0: Paul Hollywood's cookbook. Right? <laughs> yeah. He wanted to be yes. unbaked and doughy yes. in its youth. <laughs> but I love the imagery there because he's like unformed and kind of blobby. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and to Helen he's beautiful. She goes on about like his curly hair and like his beautiful eyes or whatever. But like to everyone else they can see kind of how unformed he is. Um, and like a teenager instead of owning up to his faults directly by the end of the play, he first tries to worm his way out of them by lying first like a dummy. So like, again, I'm not trying to excuse anything. I'm just saying there's some mitigating factors here and glass houses. So let's consider more of his given circumstances though, right? Dead dad. So, okay, maybe he can play the dead dad card. His mom sends him away to live with the king of France, so he's separated from his mom, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on how attached he is to his mom to begin with. He's forced to marry a girl he doesn't want to marry, like vehemently doesn't want to marry. He's being manipulated by a bunch of older guys, parolees first and foremost, but also the other courtiers in Paris and then in Florence. Um, So he's trying to play with the big boys and he just can't hang and he's trying to prove himself right and be a man. Um, And later he's manipulated by the girl he thinks he wants to marry, a.k.a. Diana and the woman he has actually married. like He's been fucked over by both of them at the same time. I'm not saying that that, any of that justifies his behavior, but it certainly does, I think, add some color. Also, we have some hints from the brothers domain in Act 4 who note a change, like a marked change in his character after he learns that Helen has died um, they don't say exactly what that changes, except that he's become more reckless. And it was after that he learned that that he went to to really went after Diana. Um, so like whether whether you think he's, you know, maybe he really is sorry for what he did. Maybe he, you know, is acting out in his grief sexually. People do that. It's a human thing to do. Or maybe, you know, he's like, woohoo, freedom! Um, and goes to bone the next girl he sees once he thinks he's a free man. Like, either way, those are playable choices for the actor who is tasked with Bertram. I will say this, though, I think the stakes are higher when there's more to lose theatrically. So I think if there was actual latent affection for Helen from the beginning, we have more to lose um by the end here. If if he's a dick throughout, then there's no reason to watch this play. And I can see you rolling your eyes. I'm not Jess. rolling my eyes,
1: I'm nodding thoughtfully.
0: Okay. Um, and some people might say, yeah, Aubrey, there's no fucking reason to watch this play. Um, but like it exists now. So like, let's find a reason to watch it. And I, I, again, I just think the stakes are higher if there's something between them. Um, if there's something redeeming about him, if there's, if there's an end to his journey that, or at least a, a notch or a benchmark in his journey by the end of the play, um, that we are invested in, I I think it makes for better Watching. Um, In the end, I I kind of view him as a a mix of Hal and Leontes in terms of like growing up, doing shitty things, also kind of being repentant. Um, But he doesn't get 16 years to figure it out the way Leontes does. He gets a couple of weeks, maybe a month. So um, whether you forgive him and buy the ending is up to you and Helen. However, I'm going to briefly dive into Act Two, Scene Five. did I talk about this in episode in our first episode on this? Girl, I don't remember. I don't remember either, but you know what? Like it's worth repeating because okay, this is Act 2 scene 5 is right after they're married. Uh it's when Bertram uh, plans to to actually to leave Helen and run away to the wars and he gives her he sells her a bill of goods about like here you need to go home I'll follow you in a couple of days we're not going to consummate our love right now we're going to do it later and then he runs off Um, and there's this moment where Helen rather embarrassingly begs him to kiss her do you remember that? You remember the moment I'm talking about? I do vaguely. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's pull some text into it. Do you have a text in front of you, Jess? Do I have a text in front of me? I mean, oh, look at you with your Arden 3. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if we could start, it's on page 225 of the Arden 3 page numbers how dare you give me a well line we have number? the same te- we have the same text I'm giving you a line number in a second but it's easier to get to the page calm the fuck I down guess. Okay, <laughs> it's
1: just so anathema oh
0: okay. do page numbers we do line numbers yeah 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 okay so go to line uh, let's see 77 ish where Helen says pray sir your pardon you see that yep great Um, Would you be Bertram for me, please? Sure. Great, we're gonna start with, pray sir your pardon. So just listen to this exchange, and then I'm gonna ask some questions about it, and we can talk about it. Okay, pray sir your pardon.
1: Well, what would you say?
0: I'm not worthy of the wealth I owe, nor dare I say mine, and yet it is. But like a timorous thief, most fain would steal what law does vouch mine own. What would you have? Something, and scarce so much, nothing indeed. I would not tell you what I would, my lord. Faith, yes. Strangers and foes do sunder and not kiss. I pray you stay not, but in haste to horse. I shall not break your bidding, good my lord. Where are my other men? Monsieur farewell. Okay, and we'll stop there. So but I will that... say Coraggio. Oh, that's Pearl, uh-huh. at least never mind. <laughs> um so my question is. And, and my point really is this. At line 85 in our text, she says, I would not tell you what I would, my lord, faith yes. And then there's a massive eight beat pause. Faith yes is one foot. There are four missing feet in that line. It's a long ass pause. Then she says, strangers and foes do sunder and not kiss. So she's asking him to kiss her yeah. Mm-hmm. My question is, does he? I'm There's gonna, no stage direction for it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I'm going to go with no, because
1: if he did, some editor surely would have added it in
0: at some point. Sure. I mean, okay, Do you want to look at other texts? Um, got, No, I don't. Then, okay. No, I mean, I've got my new Oxford right here. I'm not actually concerned with, like, the... What the text says at this point, I think it's a production choice, Um, but she's asking for it. Well, if you think it's a production choice, then
1: there it is. That's that's a different question than whether they kiss in the
0: text, whether Shakespeare intended a kiss. Well, yeah. okay. well, she asks for it. Yeah. We have no indication one way or another whether he gives it to her. Mm hmm. So what do we do with that moment? Is it, you know, he could just say, I pray he just he could just diss and dismiss her. I pray you stay not, but in haste to horse and just deny her utterly. Mm -hmm. Or um, what most productions choose to do is have him grant her wish, her one wish, which is to which is to kiss her.
1: I think that's a bad choice. Why? I don't think it jives with his character. Okay. I mean, you seem like you want them to kiss, so
0: tell I, us why. I do, but then, okay, well, I thought I did, right? Um, but this was the scene, this was my final scene in our directing class. I don't know if you remember. Um, no, I remember back when, nothing. Back in grad school. But, like, I thought I did uh, until I had actors in the room playing that through and I asked them one I was like well are you comfortable you know smooching if I ask you to and they're like yeah okay whatever because you know intimacy choreography matters but uh like I I honestly couldn't decide I had to leave it up to the actors because again I think either like He you know, there's so many ways to play that like he he's it's a dismissive kiss and he's just doing it. You know, it's like a, you know, closed mouth kind of thing. Uh, And then maybe like it sparks something or, you know, maybe it's a kiss on the cheek or maybe it's a nothing at all. Maybe it's like a turn her turn his back on her. Um, And I had the two actors working with me. Um, I had them try a bunch of options. And I really the conclusion I came to is that this scene and this moment and what the actors make of it alters the trajectory of the entire play. Like whatever way you decide to go, you know, whether he completely disses her, no kiss, affects how you're going to feel about him at the end. Right. Um, and what she's supposed to make of her lines about at the end of my lord, when I was like this lady, I found you wondrous kind, which I know we talked about in the first ep- uh, All's Well episode. He goes again, goes through like a major change when he finds out she's dead. He says, you know, basically once I thought she was dead, I found I figured out that I loved her. He's got a line like that um, in Act Five. So like, how does that jive if he doesn't kiss her, and then if he does? What can we then make of those moments later? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, like, the choice is yours, children. I leave it to you because, honestly, (laughs) I could not choose. I really couldn't. I was like, you guys do what you think is right. They got, I think what they came to was, like, they used sort of the the unspoken, really thick tension in those words, because both of them in that scene, both Bertram and Helen, talk around sex and talk around their problems, and they never actually speak directly to one another, ever, the whole time. And they use that kind of, that tension and that anger and that frustration to, like, get to the brink of, like, he acts like he's going to. And then Parole's, I think I had is like <clears throat> or something you know and like jar him out of it and take him mm-hmm. off to the war um and and for me it read more like that push and pull between like be a man go out and kill stuff and 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 his feelings which he's not allowed to indulge in at all lust yeah but like his feelings feelings bertram doesn't get any of that um because patriarchy right patriarchy is as damaging for men as it is for women that's one of my soapboxes. i'll step back from it now but like so that's that's my conundrum about that scene i i really do feel though that that one bertram is the and i agree with the Arden that bertram is the linchpin between both of the parallel plot lines i think he's the key in both and also this scene for that one plot line for the Bertram Helen plot line is the key for them. And what you make of it is, it's, you know, entirely your decision, but it will affect how everyone feels at the end of the play, whether they're on the slightly okay side between like hate it and love it or like on the hate side. So just, just leaving that there. And those are my feelings. Those are some of my feelings. Those are nowhere near all of my feelings. Those are some of them. And thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Okay, we're moving on to another uh, segment. Jess, tell us about that segment.
1: Um, Right. So this is um, how to grad school. Yep. Which we've done a while, but have not done this season.
0: And we have in one of our 201s. Great. We did it just yeah not, it's, a, it's a thing that comes weeks around and, ago. yeah <laughs> it comes around in our 201 episodes yeah every now when and it again. comes around
1: yeah um right so because a lot of our listeners are in grad school thinking about grad school no people in grad school their lives have been at some point touched by grad school they yes. you know grad school <laughs> um mm-hmm. so we want to just want to talk about it is all i'm real great off script uh (laughs) so um a a while ago there was a thread on the tweeters going around that was like what did you what do you wish that you knew before starting grad school or like in your first year of grad school or whatever you know right around the time of year that all school starts there's a whole lot of twitter that's like what's your advice for someone starting whatever they're starting Ah." um so I mean, I I tweeted some things, but, like, I know what I tweeted, and I will say what I tweeted, but I want to hear what you would tweet. Sure. First, uh, I'm not good at sentences right now. <laughs> Aubrey, what do you wish that you had known before starting grad school, either the first or the second time? Because you did a lot of grad school.
0: Gosh, there's a lot of stuff I wish I had known, frankly. Um... I wish I had known that, um, when you're choosing a program, you're not just choosing it for its academic merits. You're choosing it kind of for the cohort you're going to get stuck with because they become your network. Um, whether you want them to be or not, they become your network for your career, um, and that, frankly, had never occurred to me. Um, you're choosing. You're choosing the other people um, in that group.
1: But which also, you can never control, right? Like you're never gonna yeah. know who's incoming with you, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. You're never gonna know, and like, uh, you know, I guess really the only, the only way to get even a glimpse of that is to check the program out in person ahead of time. Yeah. But even then, you don't know. You know the the people coming in, um, personally, or you might not. So, you know, and and that, and your faculty is part of that too. You know, whether you're good at networking or not, which I don't, I am, I am and I'm not sometimes I'm on and sometimes I'm not, it's the perils of being an introvert. I don't really have like fully formed thoughts about that, but like, you know, networking with your faculty is a big deal. It's a question
1: that requires reflection, right? You can't just off the top of your head. So
0: Yeah. How about you?
1: What did you tweet? Yeah, so uh, the first thing is that you do not have to be friends with or like or even tolerate toxic people just because they're in your cohort. That is not a thing that you have to do. Don't do that thing. Uh, number two is take weekends off. Mm,
0: take yes. weekends off.
1: Treat it like a goddamn job. It is 40 hours a week. Maybe it's 50 hours a week. I understand That if you are in law school or maybe med school, that it might be more than even 50 hours a week. But for the humanities, 40 to 50 hours a week. Boom. End of story. Take weekends off. The work will get done. It always does. And fetishizing the, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so stressed out. It's fucking bullshit. And it's yeah. so toxic, and it's so damaging, yeah. and it's bad. Take weekends off.
0: Yeah. Burnout is not a virtue, y'all. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. nope. the,
1: the very first thing that I say to pretty much any first-year master student that I come in, into contact with is don't participate in the who's more stressed, more tired, working harder, whatever. Don't do that with your cohort. It's bad. Yeah. And it fosters things that are bad, and you will be sad for doing it. You have to just put yourself forward, right? Like, academia so often gets treated as a lifestyle rather than a job, and it is just a job, and in fact, there are no jobs. So why would you (laughs) let it consume your life in that yeah. way right? You, you don't don't it's bad it's bad and don't Yeah. Uh, so that's number two and then number three was make time for hobbies they're not school related um, I don't think that I had not school related hobbies um, during the masters work that we did mm-hmm. uh, unless you count walking three miles twice a day a not school related hobby which maybe walking yeah, yeah. you know I got out I listen to podcasts for two hours every day while I did three mile loops of the town <laughs> gotta miss it um but since I've been uh here in Alabama I have taken up yoga and rock climbing and I just started a water aerobics class <gasps> and it's fun so much fucking fun um and those are those are all hobbies that are in no way related to school. Um, they allow me to get back into my body and out of my brain for a couple hours a week. They're good for me. They make me happy, it gets me out of the house, gets me away from the desk. Um and that's I don't know. Those, yeah. those are things I do. I of all of my soapboxes, um the the don't let Toxic people into your life just because they're in your cohort one is is maybe the, the biggest one and a lesson that I wish I had learned before I learned it.
0: So. Do you have something you're trying to tell me, Jess?
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think you are toxic. I think this relationship is toxic. And this is our final episode. So, oh signing not a breaking up. Right
0: oh now, no. Yeah, I would do that to you in a recording session. I feel super sub, like vague booked and subtweeted. Oh my God. No, inside. this is not about you. <laughs> No, it's not Uh, about you.
1: It might not even be about people you know, but I'm not going to name and shame. So you'll just you'll have to wonder.
0: Sure. I mean, and just to add on to that, to the very, very valid points you've made that Mm -hmm. are definitely resonating with Mm me. Like also add to that list, like don't fetishize um, imposter syndrome either, because that can turn into a really... A toxic cycle too, like the the whole thing of like, oh, I feel like I don't belong here, and I'm gonna say that just to get people to comfort me. Right? Um, or you yeah. know, if you're not feeling imposter syndrome, don't think there's something wrong with you for not feeling that way. Like you do belong there. I don't know. Just ignore the haters is what I'm trying to say. Like I don't yeah. know. Yeah just do you and do your work yeah and Um, find your people
1: yeah uh one more thing that i'd like to say which is not something that i wish that i knew because i have always known it but a thing that i wish lots of other people knew um is that someone else's success is in no way a reflection of you in no way Right. right like my success does not mean that you have failed. Right. Ever. Ever. That's not Yeah. This isn't it's not how the world works. Yeah. Right? There's
0: room for everyone to be successful.
1: Yes. There's also room for everyone to fail. But yes. your failures and successes are not tied to each other. So if you have a colleague who has had a success, celebrate them. End of story. It doesn't mean they're not doing it at you, right? Like that's right. not how right. triumph works. They're not like, yeah. ha, ha 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 ha! Look at me over here with my success. Don't you feel <laughs> small and bad about yourself because you do not have one unit of success? Look at my success. Isn't it pretty? Ha ha ha! Don't you wish you had one? <laughs> like that's not. Yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah. Usually. I suppose there are assholes everywhere, and some people are going to be like, oh, I have three units of success today. Don't you feel shitty about yourself with your no units of success today? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a thing. But in general, it's it, it doesn't...
0: Yeah. Work harder. Don't try to be someone else. Even if people are trying to get under your skin with that kind of shit, mm-hmm. like, that's some really passive-aggressive nonsense, oh, to yep. which... The only healthy response is to play dumb and happy. Yep. Like, I've heard therapists say this. Like, anytime you encounter that kind of passive-aggressive nonsense, just play dumb and happy. Mm-hmm. And take them completely at surface level. Like, yep. oh, you have three units of success? That's so awesome. Right. I'm going to go get coffee this. now. And, like, yeah. Just, yeah. like, that's great. Good for you. Bye. Yep. And, like, don't let it get to you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because haters gonna hate, I Haters
1: guess. gonna hate, 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 You know, yeah. But yeah. the makers some people, gonna make,
0: make, yeah. make, make, make. <laughs> some people feel like they need I'm to broadcast. Gonna shake, 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 shake. Shake it off. Shake it off. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for Taylor motherfucking Swift right uh, now. So Taylor
1: motherfucking Swift is relevant AF to this particular podcast because nope. her new album talks about All's Well That's End Well. What?! Uh-huh. you
0: mean does she just say the phrase in one of her dumbass songs though or like does she talk about Helena and Bertram and well, like Strife I guess
1: maybe you'll just
0: have to listen to the album to find out <laughs> no that's a hard pass can Alexa you summarize will play it for me it for you, if you ask her to yeah no I definitely don't want her to Alexa
1: play Lover by Taylor Swift
0: <laughs> headphones that bitch can't hear you right now <laughs> yeah but
1: I hope someone else is Alexa somewhere just did it <laughs>
0: That's cold. She Um, does say
1: All's Well That Ends Well
0: in her new album. Yeah, okay. And it's great. Don't hate on T-Swizzle. Too late. She makes glorious
1: pop music.
0: No. You know who makes glorious music? Lizzo. Agreed. Two women
1: can do things that are great, Aubrey. (laughs) Ugh. I just
0: find Taylor Swift so annoying. I'm just... Give her a chance, man. I was once. No, I've given her plenty of chances against my will on the radio. I'm not about it. It's fine. (sighs) Shall we gossip? We have nothing to gossip about, but yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, in 201 episodes, we like to keep it play centric, um, although. Really, the productions of All's Well That Ends Well in 2019 and 2020 are really scant on the ground. Um, So some that you can still catch, though, uh, across the pond in the U.K., I say some, I meant one, is at the Guildford Shakespeare Company and German Street Theater um, in London from, well, basically all of November. And also, if you're on the west coast of this fair continent... Uh, The Oregon Shakespeare Festival is running their production of All's Well That Ends Well um, until October 13th this year. And please, somebody get there. Like another two weeks. uh, Somebody get, like a month. Okay, maybe another two weeks This episode time this episode comes out. (laughs) Shit. This is like the end of September. God damn it. Well, somebody get there and tell me how it is because I'm missing it and I'm sad about it. Um, Also, if you want to see some really smart campers take it on... Wait until the session second session of 2020, so like August, first weekend of August of 2020, and uh, you'll see a one-hour cut of it, which some argue is probably better. <laughs> at, at what camp? Oh, at the American Shakespeare Center Theater Camp. Thank Sorry. you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah, know. Yeah, so that's, but... yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. I was being too inside. Yep, you gotta say Um so those, are, so those are coming. Um, again, not not many. If we have missed one in your community, please let us know, and we also, will amend
1: our list. If you know of other plays with bed tricks, I want to hear about them.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's crowdsource that shit. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started.
1: And tune in next week for Romeo and Juliet 301.
0: We're gonna talk about it. I don't know what we're gonna talk about. Whamlet out. Bye. If you enjoyed our podcast,
1: please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on
1: and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespearshow.com. You can
0: also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions
1: you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I once made a really hilarious joke. Oh, here it is. I, I think I'm gonna get it. Let me let me double check. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yes, please recount your your hilarious
1: joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of words that Shakespeare used, the word "disaster" yes shows up in Shakespeare's canon four times. Not four. Sorry, six times. I can math. Uh huh. <laughs> once in *Pericles*. Once in Antony and Cleopatra mm-hmm. and four times in All's Well. Cuz nice. that play is a disaster. What up? Big okay. fat
0: joke on All's Well. <laughs> <laughs> Sick I burn. Know. All right, that's it. I that mean, was my hilarious joke. I think that's interesting, but I don't think that's hilarious.
1: <laughs> uh, it is hilarious. So, okay we're going to we're going to make a twitter poll was jess's allswell joke hilarious <laughs> or was it
0: hilarious 100% of people respond hilarious or was it just mildly amusing <laughs>